Welcome to Lifeline Theaters on the Air. I'm Alicia Duncan, Artistic Director. From Rogers Park in Chicago, Illinois, we invite you to open your mind to Tales of Poe, a dimension of sensation, of sound, of stories and sonnets from Edgar Allan Poe. This is the first of four programs from the deep caverns of eerie, macabre tales, just in time for All Hallows' Eve. You can support our podcast at patreon.com slash lifelinetheater. The first story tonight is Berenice, performed by ensemble member Bilal Dardai. My baptismal name is Aegeus, that of my family I will not mention. Yet there are no towers in the land more time-honored than my gloomy, gray, hereditary halls. Berenice and I were cousins, and we grew up together. Yet differently we grew. I, ill of health and buried in gloom. She, agile, graceful, and overflowing with energy. Hers, the ramble on the hillside, mine, the studies of the cloister. I, living within my own heart and addicted, body and soul to the most intense and painful meditation. She, roaming carelessly through life with no thought of the shadows in her path or the silent flight of the raven-winged hours. Berenice! I call upon her name. Berenice! And from the gray ruins of memory a thousand tumultuous recollections are startled at the sound. Ah, vividly is her image before me now as in the early days of her light-heartedness and joy. Oh, gorgeous yet fantastic beauty. And then, then all is mystery and terror in a tale which should not be told. Disease, a fatal disease, fell upon her frame, and even while I gazed upon her, The spirit of change swept over her, pervading her mind, her habits, and her character, and, in a manner the most subtle and terrible, disturbing even the identity of her person. Alas, the destroyer came and went, and the victim? Where is she? I knew her not, or knew her no longer as Berenice. Among the numerous horrible maladies which affected my cousin may be mentioned a species of epilepsy not unfrequently terminating in trance itself, trance very nearly resembling death, and from which her manner of recovery was, in most instances, startlingly abrupt. In the meantime, my own disease, for I have been told that I should call it by no other appellation, my own disease then grew rapidly upon me and assumed, finally, a monomaniac character of a novel and extraordinary form. This monomania, if I must so term it, consisted in nervous intensity of interest in the contemplation of even the most ordinary objects of the universe. To muse for long, unwearied hours, with my attention riveted to the typography of a book, to become absorbed for the better part of a summer's day in a quaint shadow falling aslant upon the tapestry, to lose myself for an entire night in watching the steady flame of a lamp, to dream away whole days over the perfume of a flower. 
such were a few of the most common and least pernicious vagaries induced by my condition. True to its own character, my disorder reveled in the startling changes wrought in the physical frame of Berenice, in the singular and most appalling distortion of her personal identity. During the brightest days of her unparalleled beauty, most surely I had never loved her. In the strange anomaly of my existence, feelings with me had never been of the heart, and my passions always were of the mind. I had seen her, not as a living and breathing Berenice, but as the Berenice of a dream. Not as a thing to admire, but to analyze, not as an object of love, but as the theme of the most abstruse, although desultory, speculation. And now, now I shuddered in her presence and grew pale at her approach, yet... Bitterly lamenting her fallen and desolate condition, I called to mind that she had loved me long, and, in an evil moment, I spoke to her of marriage. And at length the period of our nuptials was approaching, when, upon an afternoon in the winter of the year, I sat, and sat, as I thought, alone, in the inner apartment of the library. But, uplifting my eyes, I saw that Barony stood before me. She spoke no word and I, not for worlds, could I have uttered a syllable. An icy chill ran through my frame. A sense of insufferable anxiety oppressed me. A consuming curiosity pervaded my soul. And sinking back upon the chair, I remained for some time breathless and motionless, with my eyes riveted upon her person. Alas, its emaciation was excessive, and not one vestige of the former being lurked in any single line of the contour. My burning glances at length fell upon the face. The forehead was high and very pale, the temples hollow, the eyes were lifeless and lusterless and seemingly pupilless, and I shrank involuntarily from their glassy stare to the contemplation of the thin and shrunken lips. They parted and in a smile of peculiar meaning, the teeth of the changed Berenice disclosed themselves slowly to my view. Would to God that I had never beheld them, or that, having done so, I had died. The shutting of a door disturbed me, and looking up I found that my cousin had departed from the chamber, but from the disordered chamber of my brain had not, alas, departed, and would not be driven away the white and ghastly spectrum of the teeth. Not a speck on their surface, not a shade on their enamel. I saw them now, even more unequivocally than I had beheld them then. The teeth! The teeth! They were here and there and everywhere, invisibly and palpably before me, long, narrow, and excessively white, with the pale lips writhing about them as in the very moment of their first terrible development. Then came the full fury of my monomania, and I struggled in vain against its strange and irresistible influence. I had no thoughts but for the teeth. For these I longed with a frenzied desire. All other matters and all different interests became absorbed in their single contemplation. They, they alone were present to the mental eye, and they, in their sole individuality, became the essence of my mental life. I held them in every light. I turned them in every attitude. I surveyed their characteristics. I dwelt upon their peculiarities. I pondered upon their confirmation. I mused upon the alteration in their nature. 
I shuddered as I assigned to them in imagination a sensitive and sentient power, and even when unassisted by the lips, a capability of moral expression. Ah! Therefore it was that I coveted them so madly. I felt that their possession could alone ever restore me to peace in giving me back to reason. And the evening closed in upon me thus, and then the darkness came and tarried and went, and the day again dawned, and the mists of a second night were now gathering around, and still I sat motionless in that solitary room, and still I sat buried in meditation, and still the phantasma of the teeth maintained its terrible ascendancy, as with the most vivid, hideous distinctness it floated about amid the changing lights and shadows of the chamber. At length there broke in upon my dreams a cry as of horror and dismay, intermingled with many low moanings of sorrow or of pain. I arose from my seat, and throwing open one of the doors of the library, saw standing out in the antechamber a servant maiden, all in tears, who told me that Berenice was... No more. She had been seized with epilepsy in the early morning, and now, at the closing in of the night, the grave was ready for its tent, and all the preparations for the burial were completed. With a heart full of grief, yet reluctantly, I made my way to the bedchamber of the departed. The room was large and very dark, and at every step within its gloomy precincts I encountered the paraphernalia of the grave. The coffin, so a menial told me, lay surrounded by the curtains of yonder bed, and in that coffin, he whisperingly assured me, was all that remained of Berenice. Who was it asked me, would I not look upon the corpse? I had seen the lips of no one move, yet the question had been demanded, and impossible to refuse, and with a sense of suffocation, I dragged myself to the side of the bed. Gently, I uplifted the draperies of the curtains. As I let them fall, they descended upon my shoulders, and thus shutting me out from the living, enclosed me in the strictest communion with the deceased. The very atmosphere was redolent of death. The peculiar smell of the coffin sickened me, and I fancied a deleterious odor already exhaling from the body. I would have given worlds to escape, but I had no longer the power to move. My knees tottered beneath me, and I remained rooted to the spot, and gazing upon the frightful length of the rigid body as it lay outstretched in the dark coffin without a lid. God of heaven, was it possible? Was it my brain that reeled, or was it indeed the fingers of the enshrouded dead that stirred in the white cerement that bound it? Frozen with unutterable awe, I slowly raised my eyes to the countenance of the corpse. There had been a band about the jaws, but I know not how it was broken asunder. The livid lips were wreathed into a species of smile, and through the enveloping gloom once again there glared upon me in too palpable reality the white and glistening and ghastly teeth of Berenice. I sprang convulsively from the bed and rushed forth a maniac from that apartment of triple horror and mystery and death. I found myself sitting in the library, sitting there alone. It seemed that I had newly awakened from a confused and exciting dream. I knew that it was now midnight, and I was well aware that since the setting of the sun, Berenice had been buried. But of that dreary period which intervened, I had no positive, at least no definite comprehension. 
yet its memory was replete with horror. Horror more horrible from being vague, and terror more terrible from ambiguity. It was a fearful page in the record my existence, written all over with dim and hideous and unintelligible recollections. I strive to decipher them, but in vain, while ever and anon, like the spirit of a departed sound, the shrill and piercing shriek of a female voice seemed to be ringing in my ears. I had done a deed. What was it? I asked myself the question aloud, and the whispering echoes of the chamber answered me. What was it? On the table beside me burned a lamp, and near it lay a little box. It was of no remarkable character, and I had seen it frequently before, for it was the property of the family physician. But how came it there, upon my table, and why did I shudder in regarding it? These things were in no manner to be accounted for, and my eyes at length dropped to the open pages of a book, and to a sentence underscored therein. The words were singular, but simple. My companion told me I might find some little alleviation of my misery in visiting the grave of my beloved. Why, then, as I perused them, did the hairs of my head erect themselves on end, and the blood of my body become congealed within my veins? There came a light tap at the library door, and, pale as the tenant of a tomb, a menial entered upon tiptoe. His looks were wild with terror, and he spoke to me in a voice tremulous, husky, and very low. What said he? Some broken sentences I heard. He told of a wild cry disturbing the silence of the night, of the gathering together of the household, of a search in the direction of the sound. And then his tones grew thrillingly distinct as he whispered me of a violated grave, of a disfigured body enshrouded, yet still breathing, still palpitating, still alive. He pointed to my garments. They were muddy and clotted with gore. I spoke not, and he took me gently by the hand. It was indented with the impress of human nails. He directed my attention to some object against the wall. I looked at it for some minutes. It was a spade. With a shriek, I bounded to the table and grasped the box that lay upon it, but I could not force it open, and in my tremor it slipped from my hands and fell heavily and burst into pieces, and from it, with a rattling sound... They rolled out some instruments of dental surgery, intermingled with thirty-two small, white, and ivory-looking substances that were scattered to and fro about the floor. Our next story is The Black Cat, performed by ensemble member Patrick Blagel. For the most wild yet most homely narrative, which I am about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it, in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet mad I am not, and very surely I do not dream. But tomorrow I die, and today I would unburden my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world plainly succinctly and without comment, a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. To me, they've presented little but horror. 
Hereafter, perhaps, some intellect may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace, some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive in the circumstances I detail with awe nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals, and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets, and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth, and in my manhood I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. I was married early, and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity of procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal entirely black and shrewd to an astonishing degree. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mention the matter at all for no better reason than that it happens just now to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite cat and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character, through the instrumentality of the fiend intemperance, had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse. I grew, day by day, more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length, I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel a change in my disposition. For Pluto, however... I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him. But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? And at length even Pluto, who is now becoming old and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him. When in his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body and a more than fiendish malevolence, gin-nurtured, thrilled every fiber of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, 
grasped the poor beast by the throat and deliberately cut one of his eyes from the socket. I blush. I burn. I shudder while I pet the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse for the crime of which I had been guilty. But it was at best a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented it is true a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but, as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of a creature which had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave place to irritation. And then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit, philosophy takes no account, yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart. Who has not, a hundred times, found himself committing a vile or stupid action for no other reason than because he knows he should not? It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue, and finally to consummate the injury I inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning, in cold blood, I slipped a noose around its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree. Hung it with tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart hung it because I knew that it had loved me, and because I felt it had given me no reason of offense, hung it because I knew that in doing I was committing a sin, a deadly sin that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which the most cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. All house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. My entire worldly wealth was swallowed up and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect, but I am detailing a chain of facts. I wish not to leave even a possible link imperfect. On the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. 
This exception was found in the compartment wall against which it rested, the head of my bed. About this wall, a dense crowd were collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with very minute and eager attention. I approached and saw, as if graven upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and terror were extreme. But at length reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remember, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by some one of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through my window with the view of arousing me from sleep. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed, but was not, remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal, and to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented for another pet of the same species, in somewhat similar appearance, with which to supply its place. One night as I sat half stupefied in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin or rum which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment. I'd been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white, covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him, he immediately arose, purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search. I had once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. I know not how or why it was, but its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed me. By slow degrees, these feelings rose into, into the bitterness of hatred. I did not, for some weeks, strike or otherwise violently ill-use it, but gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it 
with unutterable loathing, and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence. What added no doubt to my hatred of the beast was the discovery on the morning after I brought it home that, like Pluto, it had also been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance, however, only endeared it to my wife, who, as I have already said, possessed in a high degree that humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait, the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures. With my aversion to this cat, however, its partiality for myself seemed to increase. Whenever I sat, it would crouch beneath my chair, or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down, or, fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress, clamber in this manner to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from doing so, partly by a memory of my former crime, and, but chiefly by absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, yet I should be at a loss at how otherwise to define it. My wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair, of which I have spoken, and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The reader will remember that this mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees degrees nearly imperceptible, in which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful and had at length assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of an object that I shudder to name, and for this, above all, I loathed and dreaded and would rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, of the gallows. Oh, mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime, of agony and of death. And now was I indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity. And a brute beast, whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed, a brute beast to work out for me, for me, a man fashioned in the image of the high God, so much insufferable woe. Alas, neither by day nor night knew I the blessing of rest any more. During the former, the creature left me no moment alone, and in the latter I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to the hot breath of the thing upon my face and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, encumbered internally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torment such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind, while my uncomplaining wife, alas, 
was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers. One day she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs and, nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness. Uplifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand, I aimed a blow at the animal which, of course, would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife. Goaded by the interference into a rage more than demoniacal, I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith and with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again, I deliberated about casting it in the well in the yard, about packing it in a box as if merchandise with the usual arrangements and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally, I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to walled up their victims. By means of a crowbar, I easily dislodged the bricks, and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I relayed the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, Here at least, then, my labor has not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had, at length, firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it at the moment, there could have been no doubt of its fate. It appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep, the blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus, for one night at least, since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept, even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and the third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. 
Once again, I breathed as a free man. The monster in terror had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came very unexpectedly into the house and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not in a muscle. My heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say if but one word by way of triumph and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last as the party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. Uh, by the by, gentlemen, this, uh, this is a very well-constructed house. In the rabid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say an excellently well-constructed house. These walls. Uh, are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. And here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily with a cane which I held in my hand upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom. But may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch-fiend. No sooner had the reverberation of my blow sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb. By a cry, at first muffled and broken like the sobbing of a child and then quickly swelling into one long, loud, and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Of my own thought, it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, the party on the stairs remained motionless through extremity of terror and awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and 
solitary eye of fire sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. Tonight's episode was directed by ensemble member Dorothy Milne, produced by Lifeline Theater and Sound Concept Media. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear about future projects. You can support our podcast at patreon.com slash lifelinetheater.